for me, I was like looking at it and saying, I don't actually know that God exists. I certainly don't know what happens to us when we die. And I certainly don't know that Christianity is the right religion. So what do you believe? Welcome back to another episode of Changing Faith with Mark and Leanne. Leanne, welcome to Changing Faith. Well, welcome to you. Thanks for all coming all listeners. this way and joining me here. <laughs> and, and we also have a, a very honored guest, Dr. Pete Enns. Dr. Enns, and, or you told me to address you as Pete, sorry. Yeah. Pete, thank you so much Please for do. joining Mark and Leanne. Absolutely. It's great to be here. We, we want to tell people who may not already know who you are a little bit about you that... Uh, in addition to your undergraduate degree, you have an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. You have an mm -hmm. MA and a PhD, both from Harvard, in uh, Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. This is all according to Wikipedia, so I, correct me if any of it's wrong. <laughs> okay. Now, Westminster, I, I, it's funny, when you, when you hover over things in Wikipedia, you get these little quotes and where it said Westminster. This thing uh -huh. came up that said, it has had an influence on evangelicalism far beyond its size. Have you ever there heard that There was a time when that was true. It's, it's certainly not true. I, I'm, that's not just me. That's not sour grace. But there was a time in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s when this was the only game in town. It was the only place where you could have academic discussions that in some sense took academia seriously and still try to adhere to a certain evangelicalish kind of tradition. You know, this is before Fuller and places like that. So, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was, uh, um, you know, there's the the historian. Um, oh gosh, no, I forgot his name. This is going to kill me. Oh no, not, I don't. I don't a really famous church historian. Not Roger <laughs> Olson. To huh? Not Roger Olson. No. Okay. He went to Westminster. I don't feel. I feel so ridiculous. But he wrote a. <laughs> A book on fundamentalism. Anyway, but um, he says in this book on, on American fundamentalism that he say it would be an exaggeration to say that the only important work in evangelical um, study, evangelical theology happened uh, during the 1940s and 50s happened at Westminster Theological Seminary, but it would only be a slight exaggeration. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so, so it's there, you know, and, but, you know, it's, it's, that's true, but I think that influence is waning the narrower that it gets in its theological scope. That's okay. really what it comes down to. So, yeah. It has had an influence on evangelicalism far beyond its, this sounds like your fingers when you're trying to text me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I, I have another little uh, item of introduction. Uh, Dr. Enns is uh, the most humble host of a hermeneutical podcast, according to his fourth book, which is actually in a five-book series on his own virtues, ending in the fifth book uh, <laughs> about being discovered as a scam artist titled, Dude, You're On To Me. <laughs> That's really good. That, that, was, that wasn't I'm going to take that. I should I'm actually put skip. that on your Wikipedia page. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, I need to go there every once in a while and see what lies people are telling about. <laughs> that was probably <laughs> <my> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the, uh, yeah. that's right. I did not realize this. I didn't know your name. Sorry. Uh, back in 2015, mm -hmm. when we did our second podcast on the author of Genesis. Oh, and the article that I was getting a lot of my information from was on BioLogos. Ah, you might be familiar with that one. 
I'll bet I know who wrote that. So we were actually linking to that back in 2015 with our, our early, early episodes. Oh, good. Yeah. So without yeah. attribution, I'll bet. Maybe. Um, <laughs> well, it's. I think that you put a link. It's a link, and yeah. it says BioLogos, so the attribution is on the BioLogos <laughs> side, I guess. <laughs> they stripped my name from that. Okay. I just said an article. I did. Yeah, names didn't mean as much to me back then, but but there is a link to it, and the, the name your name is on the link. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Inter- interesting. So you know, you, now, finally, finally. Yes. Now, now we, you get the attribution by, you deserve. Yes. <laughs> which which is this is the better time though because our audience is larger now. This much later. Right. Good point. Yeah. And I should mention that we uh, we got introduced by our our mutual friend, Father Josh Lichter. Oh yes. Yes. Um, he, he tells stories about my former him. student. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is our pastor at, uh, yeah. An Anglican church that we attend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So a great guy. We, we know you from your books, books like the sin of certainty and the Bible tells me so. And more recently, um, what the Bible actually is. Did I get the title no. correct? <laughs> we I, always get confused always about the title. the title. How the Bible actually works, which has yeah, the it. longest subtitle I've ever read. I will read it, in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers, and why that's great news. Yes. Mm-hmm. So memorize the whole title. And, and we'll be able to talk about that book specifically a little bit later on. And then I also, for whatever reason, went back and read The Evolution of Adam, I guess because it interests me. Uh, the evolution of Adam was thinking of yeah. a lot. I was, we were just at our, our daughter's uh, college, West, uh, Westmont college. And I oh. got to sit in on one of the genetics classes where they're talking quite a bit about the mechanism or proposed mechanism of a portion of evolution uh, coming up with a self-replicating RNA molecule. And it was a very inter- interesting lecture. And of course I was thinking the whole time about the book. I was just finishing the evolution of Adam. So You've been on influence like when all, life all converges like that. That's it's a what it was. It's a beautiful. Has your name all over it? Kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the story of a changing faith makes me when we have you as a guest makes me think of events that occurred around 2008. If you'd be comfortable talking about sure, yeah, of some of what was going on in your life that got you to that point. Because I think am I am I right that you came from a similar background to Leanne and myself? At one point in your well, life? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, I mean, a lot of my background was in the Reformed tradition, slash, another way of saying Calvinism, uh, but of a pretty conservative brand, but still somewhat edgy in ways. It's it's sort of a very odd and unstable combination almost, but that had been a lot of my upbringing. I went to a church like that in my early 20s, which led me to seminary at Westminster and then coming back to Westminster to teach after graduate school. And so, yeah, that was a big part of my background. But, you know, my father was raised Mennonite in Russia and uh, came to America after the war. The big one, WW2, all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, my mother was Polish, but also German. Germans living in Poland, which is a thing in Europe at the time. And... uh, so yeah, I, I mean, my background is is Christian growing up, but not I would not say evangelical, because they didn't know what that meant because they're Europeans. Oh. But I had a conversion experience in high school at a uh, Nazarene church, 
And uh, that sort of began a different kind of spiritual journey for me that's been, you know, ebbing and flowing all over the place <laughs> over the last, I guess, you know, 40 years now, for over 40 years. Your, your time in the Nazarene Church uh, as a youngster, how long was that? Um, about, I'd say, uh, my, from my junior year in high school through my senior year, then I went to Messiah College, which is um, outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Christian College. And then I, I might go to church like when I was home or something, but I sort of lost interest in church. And I also just found myself more in questioning mode and not just always getting saved mode, you know, and, and so that made me just look elsewhere. And then, uh, that's when I started going to a, a really good, uh, Presbyterian church for, um, probably about a couple, three years before I left for seminary. So yeah, I'm pretty eclectic. Like I was raised more or less Lutheran and be, had a conversion experience in high school in a Nazarene church. And then uh, conservative version of Presbyterianism, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and uh, then sort of like whatever, and then other versions of Presbyterianism, of, of which there are many. And uh, back to Nazarene, hmm. mainly for, not really for theological reasons, but more for, it was a good home for us for a variety of reasons for about six years. But then moving to the Episcopal world, because I just, I was just moving, you know, internally, and I wanted to be in a more liturgical environment mm -hmm. where preaching and talking isn't necessarily the center of what you do. And that was, that's not a criticism of anybody else who doesn't do that. That's just where I was and still am, you know, that's been about seven or eight years now. Mm -hmm. So how confident are you that this is where you'll find home five years from now? I'm not confident at all because that's who I am. <laughs> you know, I've, I mean, I really sit still and that's, that's got positives and negatives to it, but, um, but I don't know. And, and it's not, you know, I don't need to know that, you know, I think God is big and can handle my little movements and, and, uh, but, you know, I mean, the Episcopal church for me is, is, is broad and flexible and allows for, serious thought and engagement of issues and mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that aren't biblicistic. You know, we always have to find a proof text for something. And and I value that because I think that other way doesn't work very well for constructing a theology and a way of thinking. And again, that's my opinion. But um, so who, who knows? I mean, I don't know. And I'm fine with not knowing that. Was there a stop uh, forcing me to know, Mark? <laughs> stop it. Are you stop. certain? I'm absolutely certain. <laughs> People do that to me all the time when I say something. Are you sure? Are you certain, Peter? Are you certain? No. If you read past page three of the book, I explained okay. that, that, that um, it, this doesn't mean you can never be certain about anything. It means when you're not certain, okay. trying to fly exactly. back to certainty. That's the sin. So all right. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's been a while since I read it. So that reminds me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was, was there a period of a few years there where you went through a lot of change from a biblicist type of, I guess we should define that term, right? Yeah. I think a biblicist term, uh, a biblicism is closely tied to various forms of inerrancy where 
the Bible is a sort of mistake-proof guide to what God is like and what God wants and what it means to believe in this God and to dedicate yourself to this God. And it's, you know, I'm not poo-pooing the Bible by any means. I mean, I write books about it all the time, but um, that usually devolves into something like, I have a verse for you that solves this issue. And that's what I mean by biblicism. Biblicism, it's sort of a proof texting approach to the spiritual life. And I don't think the Bible is really set up for that. That's what my last book is about, how the Bible actually works. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so what was the bigger question behind that while I was getting off on the tangent? What I was trying to identify was if you had a time in your life that was similar to 2013 to 2017 for Leanne and myself, where... You went from that that uh, very conservative foundation, mm-hmm. and your questions took you somewhere else, and then you find yourself on the other side, and maybe even in a different church, mm-hmm. um, maybe even kicked out of your job too. <laughs> maybe even yeah. Well, yes. The thing is, what happened at Westminster? I, I taught there from 1994 to 2008, and. In a retrospect, I can see things a little bit differently. This is now over 10 years out. But um, I had always been very thankful for and, and, and respectful of that tradition. But as I was teaching there, the longer I was there, the more I could see a move toward a more conservative interpretation of that tradition. Hmm. That was not the case when I was a student there in the mid-late 80s. But it became that for a variety of issues that we don't really need to get into here, but it did. And a number of people found themselves not having really moved much, but all of a sudden looking on the outside in. And as a result, you know, I, I wrote this book, Inspiration and Incarnation, that came out in 2005, which gave some of my more motivated colleagues the uh, pretext to sort of point to chapter and verse and to make the case that I was unfit to teach there. Um, After about two, three years, um, a year and a half to two years of of faculty discussions, at least once a month to discuss the quote ends problem, um, the faculty voted and they voted about a two thirds majority that I'm fine the way I am. And uh, a third said no. And, um, we thought that would be the end of it, but the next day, letters went out to the board and others saying that we're divided and we need the board's help to step in and solve mm-hmm. this for us, even though the faculty at Westminster decides its own fate theologically, so to speak, um, but the powers that be didn't really want that to happen. So um, the, the long and short of it is at that point, this was January of 2008, at that point, I, I had made the decision I'm leaving. Because I, this is just not a fruitful conversation anymore, and and there seems to be a determined effort to make changes at the school, and so I began making um, legal moves to leave, and all this sort of ended in the summer of two thousand eight when I was no longer a part of, um, of of Westminster, and I tell you, I felt just an incredible sense of relief. Because you, you realize after you're done with something difficult, especially if it lasts for years, and in my case, it lasted for not, not just a year or two, but by five or six years, the release that you feel that you've just, you know, been liberated from something. And I was so lighthearted and so very happy. 
because I don't have people telling me what I had to think anymore. And that euphoria lasted for about six months. And I, I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, you know, okay, you got what you wanted. Nobody's telling you what to think. So what do you think? Hmm. What, what do you believe, Pete? And I realized I hadn't stretched those muscles in probably 20 or 30 years because I'd always been part of communities that had statements of faith that told you where you had to land on all the important issues. And you sort of went with it because, you know, it's your world. It's, your, it's not duplicitous. It's just you don't, you don't entertain questions that address fundamental issues of a system if you're in that system. It's very rare that you see people actually do that. Those people call prophets. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't happen very often. And so I, I just found myself now having to think for myself. No one's telling me what to think. What do you believe? And that started about a year-long time that I don't even know how it ended, to be honest with you. Maybe it hasn't really ended yet, but a, a, a time where I just, I did not know all the certainty I had was gone. All the, all the convictions I had were gone. And I, it was almost like somebody pressed reset on my whole religious life. And I was functionally an atheist. And you know, I don't say that to sound sexy. Hey, I went through an atheist phase. It's not a phase. People really struggle with this stuff. And, and, but for me, I was like looking at it and saying, I don't actually know that God exists. I certainly don't know what happens to us when we die. And I certainly don't know that Christianity is the right religion. So what do you believe? And there was, a, you know, it was a, a period of depression uh, where I had no energy to do anything. And the only thing that sort of kept me sane was working on some books um, I had three books published in 2012 and people said, wow, that's an amazing output. How'd you do it? I, I said, I did it to keep me sane. You know, I, I had to keep my mind moving somehow. And I had several books that were in the works in 2009, 2010 that came out in 2012. So, um, but, but that, that, that started basically what they call deconstruction, a deconstructing of my faith and a serious one, not like, yeah, there are a few things I'm not sure about. It's more like nothing makes sense. Absolutely. There's, I look out over the edge and I see nothing but blackness. Hmm. And I remember lying on the sofa, like just brooding about this and thinking to myself, you know, this is in the summer. I'll never sing another Christmas carol again. Hmm. I'll never go to church. I mean, everything, my whole identity as a person was wrapped up in being a knowledgeable person within a religious system. And all of a sudden, the system made no sense. So who am I? I thought of leaving teaching entirely. I wasn't teaching at the time. I was I had a severance. And, um, you know, I, did, I didn't have to look for work right away. But I, I remember thinking, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I, I think I'm going to go teach third graders, or so, which would be a disaster, by the way, ask my wife. But, you know, to teach little kids or something. But, you know, just over the period of several months, I just came into contact with people who either did not have my background at all and were very well-functioning, beautiful Christian people or people who had, who discovered elements of the Christian faith, the historic traditional Christian faith going back 2000 years and more that just made me think very differently about what God was like and what's the Bible doing and what does it mean to be Christian? And I found myself having conversation partners that we were, 
that were ignored during my seminary education and then the same seminary where I taught for 14 years. And like systematically ignoring the Orthodox tradition, for example. Like it doesn't do anything. And it's like they have ways of thinking about stuff that became very meaningful to me. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a long answer to the fact that, yeah, I think we've had similar, <laughs> you know, experiences. And and mine came, you know, at, at sort of a cost of losing a job. But that wasn't a cost at the end of the day. That was a beautiful gift that I made the decision to leave. I knew where this was going. They were going to put me on trial it would have been a kangaroo court. There's no way I would have ever won the argument. Jesus himself would come down and stand next to me and say, ends is right. And I still would have gotten fired. It just wouldn't matter. You know, so I knew where it was going. So I decided to leave. But that was that was a gift because it's brought me to simply a much more relaxed and I'd say happier faith that is not rooted in having to be right about everything. And that's a new thing for a left brain academic. Yeah, has that affected beyond just employment? It affected other relationships, close relationships that uh, are different because of this change you've gone through? No, not as much. I think, you know, usually what people say is like, you know, I, I'm tracking with you, Pete, but my wife or husband, they're not there. Hmm. And um, with my family, you know, when I left Westminster, like no one said, my family didn't say to me, they're there, there, are you okay? They're like, it's about time. Hmm. <laughs> that place was crazy. I'm glad you got out of there, <laughs> including my kids who at the time were like, you know, the youngest was 13 years old at the time and, and 13, 15 and 18. And they were like, yeah, thanks. It's good to have you back kind wow. of thing. And, um, and, you know, you know, my, my wife processes things her own way too. And, you know, she, she's not, she wasn't burdened by the same kinds of academic kinds of systems. And, and as a result is just, naturally much more open anyway you know so it didn't cause any tensions within my immediate family it did make me lose communities one of which was the school i taught at because you know that was sort of my church and my uh place of employment um but i think the thing that the thing that i lost was the communities that i had you know where even if they don't say anything you can't really go there again mm-hmm. you can't go back and and I, I've thought more than once about churches that we were attending, say, 20 years ago. And those kids, my kids used to play with, are married and they have children of their own. And we haven't kept in touch with them. Mm. So you lose that kind of community. And that's that's a big, big loss. That is. You know, but, you know, I just it just couldn't be helped in, in, in my case. I just I couldn't be what I'm not. You know, so that's the way it is. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Um. I, I think one of the things that I've been really grateful for as as Mark and I have gone through these changes is that we've been really going through it together. And, um, you know, it was several years ago that one night I I just told him, I, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I'm I'm questioning a lot of things and had never been comfortable saying that to him before because I wasn't sure how he would react. And he was like, wow, that's exactly where I am. And so it's been a journey that we've mm-hmm. gone on together. And, and we've known people who that hasn't been the case with where one right. spouse is and one spouse doesn't understand and, or they don't have somebody in their life that they can really talk to about that and how much more difficult that is. Um, Which is more isolating, right? Leanne? Exactly. I mean, it's, right. it's difficult. And, and then when you have children who 
are benefiting socially from the church. Yes. Yeah. So you stay for everybody else's sake, which is probably the right thing to do, but it's really, really lonely. It's hard to do that. Right. But our, our children were about the same age as, as you were just saying, um, when yeah. we decided we needed to just take a break from the church that we were at and, and kind of explore. And all of them had pretty much the same reaction too of, you know, it's about time, <laughs> you know, it, there might be something better out there. So, so that was, that was encouraging to know that they, they were supportive of what we were doing. Um, yeah, Which kind of leads nice. me to one of the questions that I have, um, just kind of practically, how does this work out? You know, we we did raise our kids as, um, you know, they went through Bible quizzing and they they were in Sunday school and kids church all of the time where, where everything was very concrete, what they learned about the Bible. They, they all went through K through eight. They were at a Christian school that taught them very concretely, you know, basically that the Bible is a rule book. You know, it's, it's your God created you and he gave you an owner's manual and it's the Bible. Um, and I know that you have for, for young families, one of your books is telling God's story, which I haven't read yet. I would like to, just because I, I tend to work with children a lot in, um, in different settings, but at this stage, you know, when, when, when a parent is going through this, when they have kids who are middle school or high school, um, how do you, what kind of recommendations do you have of how to kind of unteach your kids what you've been telling them about the Bible or about yeah. God all along without shattering their faith? Uh, I know. I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I'm sure as you would agree that that is really context dependent. Mm -hmm. It just depends on the relationship the parents have with the children. And some kids are like, I'm glad you said that because I've been not telling you that for years now, yeah. you know, it's like when, you know, my, one of my kids, when she was, you know, 14, um, we were going to head to church and she said, I'm not going. Well, how come? I just don't believe the stuff anymore, hmm. you know, and you don't know that unless they tell you right. sometimes. And, and so, you know, I, I think, I mean, the ideal is to create sort of a culture in the home where being, a curious journeyer who doesn't always know what's around the corner is valued as an expression of faith and not an enemy to faith. But when you've raised kids and they get to a certain age, I think, who knows what that age is, but where they're, they're buying into the system and you start saying, I'm not sure about the system anymore. I think you just have to tread very carefully, but you have to say something because kids aren't stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they pick up on things and maybe just to say, listen, you know, I am, this is, this is where I am right now. I don't want you to be worried. You know, there are plenty of people like me, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to dive off a cliff or something, but I just need you to know that I've been thinking through some stuff and I've been thinking through things that I've believed and whether I think there might be better ways of believing. So not so much a loss of faith, but a willingness to take another step. Now, you might not know what that is, mm -hmm. but that's sort of what you're doing. You are actually, you're moving forward in a sense. Even if it looks like you've pressed erase on everything, that's still a forward move. That's a necessary deconstruction before reconstruction takes place. Of course, the kids don't have to know all that, but but there's, I think there are ways of maybe putting it that are more supportive. And my sense, though, is with most young people, it's like, they're not there because they're convinced doctrinally. Mm -hmm. They're there socially, and the doctrine comes along for the ride. 
you know, you take away the youth group and everything else and kids aren't going to go back. They're not, they're right. not drawn to the excellency of the doctrine and the preaching. They're drawn to the community. And I just, my, my limited experience, I've only have three kids and I don't work with youth, but I just think that's very, very common in more conservative, evangelicalish kinds of contexts that there are a lot of kids who don't feel like they can talk. And you know, when they start talking, when they go to Christian colleges, mm-hmm. Yeah. And they start realizing that, oh, it's okay to be a different kind of Christian here. And I talk to students all the time like that who finally have in, in their minds sort of broken free from the bubble that they lived in and are now able to explore their faith on their own. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're waiting there. So maybe don't underestimate the kids. That's one way of putting it. Right. And I, I, think- I don't have a pamphlet for that. <laughs> You know? That's too bad. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, I think that we've kind of approached it differently with our kids, depending on their personality. You know, one of them, we've been very, very open with um, the changes that we've been going through. And, and he, at the same time, was kind of going through a lot of the same struggles. And we aren't on the same page at this point, probably. But but the the conversation is open and, you know, he's willing to continue to talk to us. And and so mm-hmm. we've been able to be a lot more forward and and talk to him more clearly about what we're going through. Whereas one of our other children, I think was pretty concerned about us and not quite sure what to think of, of, of conversations that we were having about our faith. But then when she went to college to a Christian college, who was, we've been so grateful for the school that she is at, um, at Westmont that I I feel like the, the Bible department comes from, so many different avenues of, of the Christian mm-hmm. faith and is very right. open and honest about, you know, different ways of approaching the Bible and approaching God. And it has really opened up her eyes and, and made her a lot more. Um, and a lot of that has to do with accepting. how relational they are too. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just been exciting to kind of see our children, you know, in their own way, going through some of the same processes that we are. We felt like we're right. just doing this, in midlife where we probably should have been doing it in college like most people do, but we're just slow, I guess. <laughs> well, no, I think, I mean, spiritually, again, I'm, I'm hardly, I hardly have a bird's eye view of all this, but I, I just, I've picked up intuitively and also from talking with people who do study like millennials, so-called millennials, whatever, that it is a different generation and they're simply not hung up on stuff. I mean, I've talked yeah. to enough young people to say, I, I don't really think about what happens to you after you die. It's just, I don't do things for that reason. Mm-hmm. And that was like the big selling point in, few, in past generations about why you should be a Christian. You want to know what's going to happen to you after you die. And so that's gone. So you can't really, you can't use that <laughs> to sort of, you know, crowbar people into the faith. Um, but I, I think, I think the generations are changing. I think young people are, are, they're rejecting. And I think for good reason, so much of, what our society, both Christian and, and maybe let's say Western American have valued. And they're saying, we need to think through this differently. They're, it's like a generational reset button. And that's why, you know, statistically, most kids fall away from the faith of their parents around the age of 15 or 16, something happens. And statistically, they come back around 30, mm-hmm. but differently. They don't just go back and join the church or their youth are thinking differently about their spiritual existence. And I'd like to think God can handle that right. and is actually fine with it. 
In fact, it's quite happy. Can the parents handle that? That's that's well, that's their problem. Seriously, (laughs) I mean, you know, isn't it though? Yeah, that's their problem. They've got to handle it, and because they're adults, and but 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 they don't always because it produces a lot of fear to see your offspring believe differently, or in some cases, not at all, because your primary motivation is like they're going to go to hell, Mm -hmm. and. Once you take that off the table, it's like it becomes a lot easier to think through some of these difficult things without always having that thing hanging over you. Right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, 10 years ago when our kids were younger, my goal, my intent was, well, at least, you know, no matter what my kids do, as long as they have a great relationship with God and are in church, then I'll feel like they're in a good place. And um where I am now spiritually, that's, I would love for that for them, but I, it does help me just kind of release that and think God knows their timing. And if they aren't exactly where I think that they should be spiritually, it's going to be okay. And it, it, it has um, just helped me not have that burden or that fear. I think of yeah. you know, what did I do wrong as a parent or what should I have done differently? Just knowing God's got it. And if, if their journey right. does not look like i had imagined it would look when they were babies, that's okay. And that's parents have to grow too. Right. You know, yeah. nothing like your kids to force you to grow up. A I know. Bit. <laughs> Stupid kids. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry to cut things off here, but we just had so much time speaking and a wonderful time speaking with Pete ends that uh, you're going to have to come back next month and listen to part two of our conversation with Pete Hens. Thanks so much. And uh, Pete, on the way out, uh, where would you like people to reach you or find your information? Um, easiest to go to my website, PeteEnds.com, which is also the Bible for normal people.com. And you can find all sorts of information, especially our podcast. You know, if you want to check that out and, uh, you know, we're in our third season having a lot of fun doing it and having some great people that help us think about things from different angles so those are that's you know that all the website has everything there it takes you all sort of different wonderful directions yeah and i see that that you do some um speaking too and it looks like you're kind of heavy on the east coast do you ever come out to the west coast well i don't just show up i mean i have to be asked (laughs) you know what i mean Ah. but i have i I was in um ventura about two years ago okay and that was fun um and I've been I've been out to California, I um, mean, you know, San Francisco several times, but just I haven't been to California probably in the past maybe year and a half. But again, I need to be asked because if <laughs> oh I just show God. up, it's awkward. I've done that. I just show up I'm and here. it's like really awkward. I said, oh, and what? you have to pay me too. Yeah, we didn't ask you to come and just get out of here. Just, yeah. So noted. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>